show on climate change. Brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. I love about environmental justice is rooted. I mean, its foundation comes from the community. It comes from the grassroots. It comes from the people that were being and are still being most impacted by environmental racism. Um, so it comes from this place of understanding that the place where people live, their communities were being disproportionately impacted with pollutants and toxins because of the color of their skin, because of where their zip code was, um, and because they were looked at as being less um, valuable. And that's Tina Johnson, director of the National Black Environmental Justice Network. She is our guest today, and I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Oh man, I am so excited for this interview here. Uh, my dear sister, how are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm actually. Uh, well, let's start with there. Let's actually start with um, the fact that I am actually ex excited to talk with my friend Tina, and for those who don't know. Tina Johnson specializes in U.S. and international climate change policy, diplomacy, international climate change, strategic development, and advocacy. She is an expert in international foray in the United Nations framework on climate change, the United Nations and United States on climate policy. She is an experienced professional developing highly proactive engagement strategies with a deep knowledge of partnership engagement with multi-stakeholders and strategic planning and development on climate change policy. She's the principal of Johnson Strategy and Development Consultants and the director of the National Black Environmental Justice Network. And she is also a poet, and we will get into that later, and I'm excited about that. But first and foremost, my dear sister, how is it going? And, and, I, and, I, and I say that like this is the, like, have you, have you started to breathe yet? Like, have you begun to like this exhale post-election? Yeah, I, I like to say that I'm in the decompressing phase of relief. <laughs> so I'm like, uh, you know, it's been, I think in this moment after the election was called, it's like, yes, and you can feel that you can breathe and I'm still gradually decompressing that relief. Um, I'm not yet fully at overjoyed uh, just because it's been a long time coming. It's been a long four years, uh, but also because I'm thinking through the work that we still need to do. Um, so, you know, the, where we are uh, as a country um, is not because Donald Trump was our president for the past four years. We've been here for quite some time. But the wounds of where we are are laid bare now, and the work that we have to do um, to heal and to actually move forward uh, are 
are visible. Uh, and so now that's sort of that decompressing of, okay, we've, we've got this done and now the next step. Um, so to me, the joy comes when we actually make the next step and it's forward and it's um, effective and it does dismantle racism and we actually heal in a, in a more fuller way. So yeah, I'm a bit more measured in my enthusiasm, um, I think, than most people. So, no. really, not. But I am relieved. <laughs> no, and and I think we we all should be relieved. Um, are you excited about what's on the other horizon now? And what I mean by that, not just the excitement of the relief, but the next the next steps. I am optimistically hopeful that we will be able to take advantage of this moment mm. and to do the work that needs to be done. Um, but I'm also realistic that we have a lot of work to do. Uh, just the outcome of this election, the, you know, the largest um, turnout for voters ever. Um, Trump got 72 million and uh, Biden is on track for what is it? Uh, 77 million people have voted. So really understanding that the, our future moving forward is for me, at least it's, it is about getting uh, policy and, and political folks who get the true meaning of governance in office but it also means getting those folks to understand that the status quo is no longer acceptable, mm -hmm. uh, that it's no longer feasible to just do the bare minimum where the African-American community is concerned or the LBT, LBGTQ community is concerned or other minority groups are concerned, that we actually need to push further. Um, and so now that is the, so I'm cautiously optimistic uh, that that's what we're going to do. Uh, so, you know, because we're on the other side of this and the relief is, okay, it's no, at least it's not Trump, but that can't be the, the standard bearer. It needs to be, we need to go beyond. We need to get further uh, down this road. I, I agree with you. Well, we're going to get into the politics. We're going to get into uh, environmental justice and where that is and what you're doing. But let's first get into you. You know, yeah. folks who don't know you, and I don't mean your activist side and all your, well, you have a, I mean, you have, a, you have an amazing resume and CV, what you've done on the climate side, but just who is Tina Johnson? Well, I mean, in the, well, I am the middle child of 12. I'm an identical <laughs> tw uh, twin sister. Um, my sister lives in Florida. Uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, I didn't know that. See, I, I just learned something new myself. Yeah, um, I love traveling and um, I love nature. It's a really big part of my life, um, the outdoors. So backpacking and river running and skiing and mushroom picking and all those um, things that just get me in touch with just the, the, the natural world is really important to me. Um, I'm a writer, so I do both prose and poetry. Um, Actually, I quit my job a few years ago so I could write my first collection of poetry, which I published in uh, September of last year. Um, and I think overall, I'm just, uh, I'm a, 
I'm an engaged person um, in the world that I exist in. So I'm really interested in the work that I do on the climate side, but I'm also really interested in the the side of being a steward, a good steward um, within the context of humanity that I that I share with others. Um, and I love animals. Um, I don't have any pets because um, I'd be a terrible pet mom because I travel way too much, but I love animals. <laughs> except for rats, but I'm trying to really get over that. <laughs> they deserve love too. <laughs> no, I do know about that one. I don't know. <laughs> we, we, we. Well, they, have, they, they have these amazing rats that uh, they use in parts of um, Africa and Asia that sniff out bombs. And uh, they're raised to do this and they've saved thousands and thousands of lives. So they're, yeah, I mean, I'm not there yet, as I said, but I'm learning to appreciate that there are some gifted and talented rodents out there. <laughs> That's very, very. I didn't know that. So there you go. You can have our, uh, you can have our, uh, our rat uh, bomb sniffing crew. Yeah. yeah, they have to be a rat bomb sniffing crew because if they're the, the sewer rats in New York, and nah, I'm not having it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you definitely learned how to be sustainable with 12 of y'all. I mean, yeah. you learned how to, I guess, you know, they passed down a whole lot of stuff before folks got it. So, yeah, um, man, I can make my own, ma I make mayonnaise from scratch. I don't make butter. I mean, <laughs> you know how to do a bunch of things when you come from a family of 12 and there's not a ton of money. So, but there's things I love. I remember going to college and, uh, you know, my friends are like, I have no food. I'm like, you have flour. You got, I mean, you have all this stuff. You can make pancakes. <laughs> They're like, well, I'm like, you can make bread. And I'm like, you really, you don't have to buy this stuff already made. You know, processed food was not a really big part of our family's diet. So, mm. yeah. That's, that's, that's amazing. My mom is actually, um, was one of, was one of 11. Okay. But yeah, she came from a, a big family and, you know, obviously, you know, it's it's interesting to watch them actually do their thing. Yeah. 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 You have a village. You don't you don't need other friends because you already have friends. <laughs> so, I'm like, yeah. I'm mean, like, I have five sisters, six brothers. I'm like, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> so, it's too funny. Well, man, that's great. And I didn't know you were a twin. Is it like a? a we're identical. We're identical. Mm -hmm. Wow. See, now I got to be careful. Next time I see you, I, I, I can be in the airport and I just run on somebody's grabber and say, hey. This has happened. My sister was coming to visit me when I was in university and a professor was coming to Philly and they were, met each other in the airport and she ran up to my sister. My sister's like, I'm not Tina. <laughs> and I've had it happen to me in Philly walking down the street and this guy just came up and just grabbed me. And I'm all like, Nessie? I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not her. <laughs> oh, so it does happen. <laughs> Oh man, that is too too funny! Wow, yeah. that's amazing. That's 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 that, that's that's a lot of fun. Now, is she into the environment like you? She does it from a different perspective. She okay. she's a permaculturist, and she has um she has a a nursery where she raises she grows edible plants um yeah. that are native to Florida. Um, and so she has a different approach to it, and is doing more with uh, foods sustainability and uh, sort of, you know, these edible 
gardens instead of planting things that just look good you should plant things that can actually feed you um and working with community gardens in her area in pinellas county in florida all right what's up yeah uh, actually that's an, I mean, that's the right line to that's what we need to do um our community i mean i think we need to do a much better job of how we feed ourselves and grow our food again um, yeah i being able to sustain a few things on your own is really important. And I think that uh, we need to get back to that. Not everything, um, but uh, some of the things that uh, make your life a little less um, dependent. Um, if, there's a, if, if there's a need or a reason why you can't. Like right now with people not shouldn't be going to the store. Well, I guess you can't grow everything, but you know, some things. No. I'd have a chance. Chicken, even though I'm allergic to chicken, but I like I like eggs. I can eat eggs. <laughs> oh man, you know as you say that, it's interesting because I'm so glad. And like I said before, in your bio, folks, Tina is the director of the National Black Environmental Justice Network, um, which is uh, a network. We're going to get into that because you know we have many folks who I'm close with who are part of the creation of that. But a lot of folks who aren't from the environmental justice community love to talk about environmental justice and don't have the folks who are actually doing the work. So Tina, for folks who are listening, what does environmental justice mean to you? Yeah, I think the thing I, I love about environmental justice um, is that, you know, it's, it is rooted. I mean, its foundation comes from the community, it comes from the grassroots, it comes from the people that were being and are still being most impacted by environmental racism. Um, so it comes from this, this place of understanding that the place where people live, uh, where they worship, where they work, uh, where they gather for picnics or walks in the forest if they're there or in parks that uh, their communities were being disproportionately impacted with pollutants and toxins uh, because of the color of their skin, because of where their zip code was, um, and because they were looked at as being less um, valuable in essence to other communities. And so for me, I just, it's like I it's like the civil rights movement, our movements for justice and fairness, equity in the United States in particular, are rooted in this sense of knowing within the black community, we're not being treated well, we're not being treated right, we're not being treated fair, there's no justice in this space and we can see that by what's going around going on around us in our environment. And so environmental racism actually was coined by um, environmental justice, actually. It was, used to be environmental equity. And there was a woman in, in the South, I think in Louisiana, who had asked, well, what does environmental equity mean? What does equity mean? And, and it was explained, you know, equity, that, you know, that, there, that there's an equitable distribution for across communities. And this woman said, well, I, we don't want equity. We don't want anyone else to experience what we're experiencing. If right. that's that, we want justice. And we want, we want people to have a quality of life in their communities that is rooted and based on justice. And equity is not justice if 
it equates to you being polluted on, you being impacted in a negative or in, in an adverse way that you can't breathe, that cancer rates are high. And so this environmental justice is really, for me, it means where we live, where we work, where we play, where we worship, where we go outside and enjoy the natural world. It is the environment. It is really, it's not uh, simply about climate. It's not simply about um, clean air. It's all of these things and more. Um, and I think that uh, when I talk to people about environmental justice, they go, well, EJ folks. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, or, you know, the EJ issue. And I simply say EJ is the EJ issue, environmental justice issue is economics, it is education, it is health, it is uh, social uh, justice, it's racial justice, it's health justice. I'm like, it is not, and it's climate justice, it is all of these things, and environmental justice is that connective tissue to all of these things. Environmental justice is Black Lives Matter. It is all of this. Um, and, you know, our community as a whole does not have the luxury of being a single issue community. And that's one of the things I think environmental justice brings to the fore is that it's all of these things and every justice space issue can find a root here. It connects back to our environment. It connects back to what justice means for us. So... That's no, what I that was powerful. No, that was thank you for that. That was that was pretty good there, Tina. And I guess I guess my my question to you is that in with your amazing description of environmental justice, how do you feel then that it gets siloed based upon you give a you give a much more holistic, comprehensive angle of what I believe in. I, I shared it with you, EJ is what you said. But also it seems like EJ is just regulated and while it is move for black lives and why it is an issue for indigenous people of color. It seems like white people kind of bastardize it a little bit. It seems like they almost put it into the, this into this kitty table mentality that is off to the side and it's not part of the larger movement. How does that make you feel when you or do you do you see that? Or and if you do see that, how does that make you feel when larger groups bastardize it and then sometimes use it at their own when they want to. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the unfortunate things about the co-opting of, of language from um, a space, from people, is especially by groups that have more resources to create a narrative. They have bigger communication teams so they can actually put their own stamp or brand on 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 phrases or definitions and meanings for a community and make it something that is completely different or uniquely different just for their needs is that we find ourselves in a conflict, right? Like there's a conflict suddenly. It's like, well, we work on EJ. And when you look at what EJ looks like for a larger organization or a predominantly white organization, it does not look like what EJ is for the communities that started it. And so now we have a reckoning within this space where folks realize, oh, we need to work on EJ in a more meaningful way. And it's like, no, you actually need to make space for environmental justice organizations and leaders who do this work to lead 
in a more meaningful way. You need to take a step back. I say that to folks all the time. Sometimes your leadership is your ability to take a step back and allow others to take a step forward and for them to lead. And so I, I don't spend a lot. I personally don't spend a lot of time getting angry about these things. I get frustrated and annoyed. And then I start thinking, how do we change it? <laughs> right? Like I vent, I say what I need to say. And I'm like, how do we change it? And it is for me, it's these conversations when someone says, well, yeah, it would be great. Like in the next administration, if we get, if EJ could get somebody at, HUD or if they can get somebody over at EPA. And I'm like, well, we actually want someone at energy. We want someone that's over at commerce, treasury, transportation. We want environmental justice, the equity and justice lens to be, be what is used to decide and to frame out policy across the federal government. That's what we need. We really need that. And so I just see it less about, uh, I get the co-opting, but I think you co-opt things because you like them, but what you like about them is not the people that created them. It's like, you know, hip hop. <laughs> it's like the dance or clothes. We like the idea of it. We just don't like the people that come with it. And now I think there's, this is our small window of opportunity to say, you can't have environmental justice without the people. And I think they get it. Like EJ is not a slogan. It is, it is an embodiment of an experience that you cannot put on like you can a baseball cap or sneakers or makeup or dress it, or, or effect in the way you speak. It's an embodiment, uh, embodiment of an actual experience that we live deep inside of ourselves. Um, and that it impacts us on a daily basis. And that is rooted in racism, systemic racism. Um, and so I think that that right now um, is really, an, there's an opportunity there for our communities to really lead, but we need these predominantly white institutions, funders as well, to make space, a lot of space for us to do so. Um, and for us to be able to Hold, carry the banner that is ours that we've created uh, to fight the wrongs and to push forward um, towards the justice that we see through that equity and justice lens. No, that's powerful. No, and I guess, and, I, and I'm with you on that. And you mentioned about the Biden administration. And one of the reasons why I am excited about what Biden is doing is that um, it's clear, not just Biden, but also in, with uh, Senator Harris should be vice is Vice President Harris. Um, you know, before she was right before she was selected, she had put forth legislation describing what you just said about the importance of having environmental justice be throughout the federal government and literally being um, um, you know, you know, in different offices, not just as a an add-on, but literally how it framed policy coming yeah. from those, those those entities. And I think that what we're seeing now. Um, is there's a lot of discussion um, around the Biden presidency, Biden-Harris presidency, um, you know, utilizing environmental justice. What are your thoughts from your perspective? I know you're in some of those meetings or you're having those discussions with a lot of other leaders around the country. What are your thoughts about that, particularly in regards to with, with, with um, Vice President-elect Harris? And what and how she was approaching it um, with her legislation that she had with Senator Baldwin and Senator Booker 
also how it mirrored uh, House Representative uh, 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 Chairman Grahalva and and uh, Representative um, McKeachin. So how does how does what is your what, is, what are you optimistic about what EJ is going to look like in the Biden Harris administration and what advice? Friendly advice would you give since you have the mic right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, many folks believe that this is the most um, environmental justice, progressive. I mean, it's big, right? Like, it's the most that any presidential candidate at that point in time, now President-elect Biden, has put forward that really gets at the core of what the environmental justice movement has been fighting for for over 30 years. So the, um, the Build Back Better um, plan, uh, the Lift Every Voice that came forward out of before the Build 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 sorry Build Back Better um, plan sort of was the uh, thing that everyone's been talking about around the stimulus um, infrastructure package. I mean, it's impressive. It's it's progressive. <laughs> it's um, it addresses a lot of the concerns around environmental justice and that equity lens and how do you engage in communities that have been at the front forefront of, um, of impacts from climate change to uh, economic policy. So it has all of the, I'm gonna use the right word. It has the potential to do the things that communities have been fighting for for 30 years. And that is what's exciting about it. And I think that's what got a lot of folks excited about um, Biden when that came out. It was like, oh my goodness, what? This is all in there? I mean, I know you were on one of the calls where this was talked about. Like, here is this opportunity to do this work. So that said, I'm optimistic about that. However, what happens in the you know, the, the, the pre-election and what happens at post-election tend to not always add up to being the thing that got you excited. And it's because now you're in the business of governing. Uh, and then you have to get folks that are going to actually agree on these things and support this legislation. And, you know, our legislators have not passed many laws. I think every year, every um, con every Congress, the number of laws that we are able to actually pass has dwindled down. I think we're last. I don't even think we're at a hundred now. Um, and so there are going to be some obstacles, but there's the executive orders that are uh, that are at his disposal, which I know he will use. Um, so that's promising. But the long term. Um, sort of impact of executive orders are only as impactful as the, uh, the ability to enforce them, implement them, and to fund them. Mm -hmm. So how do we make sure that those, um, so I think that's key. It's sort of, yes, we can do executive orders, but we really need to figure out how these become legislative, um, pra uh, legislatively enforceable. How do we do that? over time and not just say it's an executive order and forget about it. So I think giving teeth to these executive orders and giving resources to them to make sure they work is going to be key. Um, but it's also a $2 trillion um, infrastructure stimulus package or proposal that's on, on the table. And so where does that happen? Um, I think the advice I would give at this moment would be that I think it's important that as we're moving forward uh, from the Trump administration into what should be, 
a more stable um, administration and stabilizing our government is that we actually also, yeah, I know, right? That we also, I'm praying with you, Rev, that we also, there has to be room for these new voices, um, these new ideas, and that the old guard, those folks coming from the Obama administration, those folks coming from the Biden um, um, vice presidency space and when he was senator, that they understand that they should be bringing forward the, the next generation, as, she, as he said he wanted to represent, that has to be part of this. It has to be this real clear balancing act between stabilizing the government and moving us towards uh, a, a familiar United States, but also heeding the call why people voted for them that you're going to move us into the next generation, the next millennia with new policy, new voices, new ideas that get us further down the road that I spoke about earlier. The status quo is no longer um, acceptable. So I think that the environmental justice um, office that they have proposed to have in the White House is going to be key. But I also think that that having that equity justice lens really leading their policy is really going to be important because EJ shouldn't need a, a law by itself. It should be the law in which we choose to develop our, our legislation so that we can govern in a more just and fair way. You said so much there. And I just, I, the last part you said, I want to, I want to hinge on in regards to, you know, we are in a moment of crisis. And literally, we had an administration that was so destructive in dismantling and rolling back regulations that literally would save and protect our people. And we, we don't know how many people will die um, from just the, the callousness and just the, just the just disregard um, of what it means to have clean air and clean water and just rolling back methane and mercury rules and car standards and all, and, you know, just so many things, literally in the hundreds, it's not like a few, rolling that back. Um, my, my thing is, is that while I'm excited, I join with you with seeing Biden-Harris, I, 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 I don't want what was there, you know, eight years ago. I don't think that that's, that, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want that. I don't, that, that to me, on that watch, we had Flint. On that watch, we had a number of other things, you know, from Standing Rock, we had other issues from Africa Town to, we still had the, the, the pipelines being built. So I'm not, I'm not like saying we did, we go back to the, as you said, status quo. So I'm excited about a new um, Bible way. In that, um, let's talk about you know, obviously the organization that you direct, and, and I want to make sure just break it down from the National Black um, Environmental Justice Network um, in, that, in that process. And what, what, what will be the role, first, for people who don't know what that is, tell them what that is, um, 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 why it is, why, why, why black is the next word in the, in the title <laughs> at the national, um, and then all the, all the words in the title. I love actually, um, from the environmental justice and the network. I, I just love all, I just love, I love everywhere in the title, to be honest. Um, um, but talk about what that is 
so you can let people know um, where was it before, where is it now? Because it was around before and it came back. Um, what was the need to bring it back? Um, but then also with this Biden-Harris administration, will it be important to be inside, outside, or both? Um, so I was not uh, the, um, the the scribe who came up with the National Black Environmental Justice Network's name. And actually, the, the, uh, from my understanding, from the, the keepers of the history, this was a very long discussion. Um, they had a name before, but they settled on this in 1999. And so the network was started in 1999 by, um, by then very young <laughs> members of uh, the environmental justice movement, who we now call the elders of the movement, uh, with uh, Damu Smith at the helm of the network as its executive director. Uh, and it formed because of the need to address the toxic waste and pollution that was going on across the, the, the country, but in particular in, uh, along the Gulf South, South Corridor. And it engaged uh, not only grassroots community organizations working on issues around toxics, but also farmers and folks working in the civil rights movement. So it was a really big coalition of, of folks across sectors. Um, and it really had a strong impact on, on how the African-American community in particular um, came together to really think through how they could address their issues on um, that they were facing. At the time, it was still systemic racism, right? Like these are the issues rooted in systemic racism, but how they could support each other and elevate and work towards answering their, their needs together in this collective way. So you had grassroots organizations, but you also had researchers and academics and you had um, uh, experts in fields that really like energy or they were working in, um, uh, I think at the time, I don't know if it was GIS mapping, but like how do you map out where all of these things are happening? You had sociologists. So you had a, a good mixture of all these really smart people coming together and also adding to the capacity of but boots, folks that were living in these communities. And in, 20, in 2005, Damu, um, he passed away um, from cancer, um, which was undetected. And when it was found, he, was he did not survive. And that really was a, it was a heavy blow to the network. I was not around. It's way before my time. But when people talk about Damu Smith and his impact, um, it was one that just... I think took the sales out of the network um, because he was such a charismatic individual and was really dry, a driving force in a, in a way um, for the network. But what happened was that the network as a formal entity sort of faded away, but the community continued to work in a, what I call a decentralized manner either in alliances or coalitions or consortia. consortia. So you have the HBCU, Equity, um, Environmental Justice, Equity Consortium. You have the HBCU, um, Climate and uh, Climate Equity um, Consortium, which works with HBCUs around the country and does their fabulous HBCU conference every year in New Orleans that's directed by um, Dr. Beverly Wright at the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice and Dr. Robert Bullard over at Texas Southern University and then a cohort of, of, of their colleagues who 
really take on the the mantle of preparing the future leaders uh, for the environmental justice movement, but also just for um, just for the, the social sciences, STEM, um, the arts, to have a space and a place and a voice to continue the fight for justice in, in their communities and beyond. So, so this network really is sort of, I like to call it, um, it, I don't know, it's like the, if you had like an all-star, <laughs> an all-star agenda, it's like everybody that you would want on your team, it's, it's, it's there. And so the network um, came back together in June of this year, and primarily because of just the, this reality of so many things coming together at once. I mean, systemic racism is something that um, unfortunately we live with on a daily basis if you are Black in America. And, and to a large extent for other folks who are not Black but identify in a minority status in the U.S. also experience. And then to have that compounded with COVID-19 and then have that compounded with the death of Breonna Taylor, the death of Ahmaud Aubrey, the death of George Floyd, all in that moment. I think it was just this real pressure that was collectively felt. Um, not just in the EJ movement space, but also with the Black Lives Matters folks. And just this pressure point was like, we have to step into, not our power, because we're always in our power. We need to step into this space that is, there's a void right now around these particular issues. And I think if, I can't speak for everyone, so I'll speak for myself. I think it was a moment in which we, that I realized that we all had something to give collectively that could move us forward, not just as a community, um, a black community, but as an American community, and that we needed to actually take take up that space again. And so we relaunched in, in June um, really with the goal not to replace any existing alliances or networks or coalitions, but to actually bring together, sort of be like a clearinghouse, to so bring together across the sec across these different sectors from, you know, the spaces where there's folks working on energy or human rights or civil rights and working on police reform. Because again, environmental justice is about all of these environments. It's not about one. It's about the environment which we cohabitate together and really finding a way to connect these issues and seeing EJ as the connective tissue. Um, and so our role really is both uh, as a think tank and as a first and foremost as a advocacy and campaign focus organization that is rooted in grassroots organizations because that's where it started was with grassroots. But then finding ways within that policy space to marry happily <laughs> together the work of the folks on the ground because you can't do policy without understanding the needs of the people on the ground. And you can't be successful in your efforts on the ground without policy reflecting your needs. And so really finding that, that sweet spot of how do you bring these two things together so that we can actually make changes that are pushed forward by the people that are going to be the, that are being most impacted by the legislation, the policy, by the framework in which we are, are we've created our society. Well, you know, Tina, I want to say thank you for stepping into this role. No, I, I mean, I want to say thank you so much for so many different things. Um, I'm glad that um, out of this crisis and what we saw this year in 2020, 
and we got something good. I mean, we uh, we didn't get we wasn't that much, you know. <laughs> we we had, we had a lot we had a lot more on the on the rough side of the mountain than on the other side of the mountain. So I'm glad that with the National Black Environmental Justice Network that that was reformed. I'm glad that you, um, knowing you, knowing this this year, um, how you think and how you approached in the year in this in this position. Um, a couple of things in that, um, you know, I you know I grew up, and one of the people who who who, who raised me when I was young was Doctor Wright. He tells the story, and that died. Everybody can go back. And she'll say this all about her changing your diapers. You can yeah, say it. So, <laughs> <on now. laughs> First time I met you, that yeah, was the story. story. All, all of those students, I was all like, "It's the sweetest story." Oh, and at the same time, he's just like, "I can't believe it." But no, you know, it is. But but that actually is creates me because of her, um, because of my 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 my, my mom who obviously is an activist um, and she has drilled into me the importance of folks like Ella Baker and Fannie Lou and Dr. Um, you know, Dr. Wright, you know, who she was close with, um, obviously. Um, and so that that's a huge piece. And then for me, when I was in school, um, I went to undergrad at UDC and became very close to actually that in that role, Damu. And then when I was um, uh, in the uh, in the Air Force and then out the Air Force, speaking out against the war in Iraq, Damu on the other side of anti peace work was somebody who was very instrumental. So I, I, I was so you know, and then very 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 grateful to be doing those things. That, that leads me to a couple of things actually. So for me, and I, I really mean this. It's, it's important for you and important for our movement to people to understand. And I hope people who are listening really go and um, go to the website um, for the National Black Women's Justice Network and they, they check it out and they donate and they give. But I also, I also think it's important from the standpoint of, um, from an Ella Baker standpoint, that I'm a big proponent of institutions more than individuals. I think that I, you know, like I'm a, I'm a minister, so I have certain gifts, but I sometimes push back because I think that sometimes it's, individuals can only go so far. And actually you can get in trouble if you're an individual because you can get your ego, you can think it's all about you, and you can do things that aren't for the movement. And so I just, for me, um, what, what's your long term? Where do you want to see this go now? Because clearly, you know, bringing it back is one thing, but what's, what's, what's the ultimate goal for the organization? Yeah, I mean, I, your comment around the individual versus the institution resonates with me strongly because I do think um, historically we, you see it everywhere. I mean, people, for some reason are willing to circle around an individual and not an institution. And when we do that, if the institution, if the, the work of the individual is good and the institution that they're working on behalf of has the potential to do good work, then the work of the institution needs to be front and center. 
um, because uh, institutions should outlast a person um, and not, and a personality is what I believe strongly. And so, I mean, I really am doing the work to make sure that the institution can exist beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like it's the National Black Environmental Network and it's a network that should exist. And the goal is to have it exist beyond to do the work that needs to be done, to have the influence it should have for the communities and the, and the folks that engage in it um, as a resource and a tool to continue to push forward on, on the things that they believe in in a, in a collective, cohesive way. Um, we are stronger together than we are separate. Um, and if an institution like the National Black Environmental Justice Network can be a, a force that can be wielded by its members to do the work that benefits them, then that is that then that then that's a good thing. And so my goal really is one is to fund it uh, so that we're not begging for money all the time. That's just the thing it, that you know I think of. You know, I used to work in predominantly white spaces. Um. And organizations who do not even a tenth of what um, organizations like uh, MBEJN or the Decel Center for Environmental Justice or the Hip Hop Caucus does, you know, like they get hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases to do work that they then ask us to support. And my goal is like, hey, fund us at a level that we can actually wield the influence that we know we can and do the programmatic work that we know we must. And so I've really been pushing around really helping build the capacity of the organization so that we can actually have the staying power before we build out the programming of the organization. Because you can have all the programming you want, but if you don't have the capacity to do the programming, you're not going to be around very long. And then the other is to really engage the membership in the way in which the organization runs. I mean, our platform is really based off of the input from the members and what they want to work on and what's important to them. Um, and then them driving that um, and us filling in and supporting and helping to build the capacity where they might lack the capacity, maybe around communications or if there's policy issues that they're interested in, how do we m- create that at the state local level, but connect that to the national level so that there's broader impact. So I just see this and um, the goal for this, in- this organization is to be an organization that, exists on be- to work on behalf of its members and that it's um, that the leadership is reflective of the commitment to be good stewards um, in tandem with the communities that it, it, it represents um, that make it exist. So that's my goal. I, I mean, I've, I always think that nonprofits should work to put themselves out of business, right? Like it would be great if we just didn't have to do this work because everything was equitable and just. Um, but as long as we do have to do this work, that it should be really rooted in the stewardship of, of service um, to making our communities and the world a better place. Yeah, I love that. Um, like Damu, when he had passed in 2005, um, our movement took a hit this mm-hmm. year, the passing of Cecil. Yeah. Mark, um, reflect on Cecil and what he meant to you, um, what, he, what he meant for our movement, and just, you know, um, how that hits you. Yeah, I think, you know, I think one, when someone goes 
leaves us so f- suddenly and unexpectedly, uh, it's a different kind of air being let out of you because it's just a blow, that, a body blow that you just, you, you aren't braced for. Um, but I mean, to think about, you know, I, I don't know Cecil like for 30 years. I've known Cecil for maybe five or six years. And one, you know, Cecil was Cecil. He said what he thought, uh, engaged and had strong opinions about things, but he, and he was a worker. He worked for um, every community that he was in service to. Uh, and that is something, his dedication to the folks in New York, his dedication to the environmental justice movement. I mean, it spans. I, I was really, I didn't realize he was with uh, We Act for 28 years. Yeah, no, I didn't know he was there. But, you know, like that dedication to that vision and to that commitment to make his community and the communities around that better and to lead and I mean you know he is I my heart goes out to we act because he was such a instrumental and huge part of the work that they did along with Peggy but you know like this too and then the staff and so it's a blow because um he really had in a lot of influence and ability to see young people and, and, and nurture them in some ways that maybe they wouldn't have been nurtured in other um, organizations. And I just think just uh, his thoughtfulness and he just was really engaged in the issues and willing to engage others in those issues. And that's going to be, that's a huge loss. But again, it's also a testament that we act continues because it wasn't built around an individual. It was built as an organization that is set forth to do the work um, that its mission um, has laid out, but that he is missed by staff and family and friends and community and people who didn't know him, who have heard about his impact. Um, but it's also a note to us um, as it, like with Damu, he didn't know he was sick. Uh, until it was too late uh, that we oftentimes find in our community in particular we give until there's nothing to give for us and then we lose a lot of people um, too soon um, because they're taking care of others and not taking care of self so that's something also I just I think about just that commitment to us should also be a commitment for for self no, that's real Self-care, and it's not to say the slogan, self-care is a revolutionary act. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about Cecil a lot. We actually were um, the same age. So, uh, yeah. so um, you know, I, I think about, you know, actually, it's a lot. I'll just say that. It was just because yeah. I, I share a lot of what you said, his personality and who he was. But I, I admired him because he was someone who was committed to us. Yeah. And, and, I, I know Cecil could have dipped. You know what I mean? It would have been no problem for him to dip and go someplace and, you know, just been there. But he 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 did that. And I and I and I and that also makes me go back to what you said earlier about us not having the resources that we need to have for our organizations and our community, because then that stress sometimes of having to carry work three and four jobs, um, mm-hmm. You know, make a joke for Jamaicans, <laughs> but that's not that, that, that's not fair to those of us in in the movement. Um, 
So, Tina, I, 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 got, I got a few more questions for you. One on EPA and on Black women in the movement, but I want to stop there and because I think this is after that. I think it would be a good time to hear some of your poetry or prose. You <laughs> You're so funny. Um, yeah, I will read um, something for you. Uh, so I work a bit, I should just tell you, I, my, I work with layering in my poetry. So um, I play a lot with the page. So my work is really both visual as well as sound. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm not a spoken word poet. Um, but uh, so I just say that to say there will be no mm, uh, <laughs> in my, my work. <laughs> Um, yeah, so yeah, this is from my, my book I published in September, uh, Influence of Place, and um, it's The Things We See. The things we see when you look out of a window. Bird shit drops from the sky. I assume that there is a bird, either perched above chatting away while relieving itself. Perhaps it could not pause so it did it while in mid-flight. I happened to catch sight of bird shit falling when I looked out of the window. Watching two boys, either best friends, first crush, future best men or husbands, navigating their youth, creating memories, wasting time. Each day I see them through the window is a good day for me. In fact, it's the best thing most days. I ad-lib their conversations in between the bites of their after-school snacks. I marvel at the balance that they strike to accommodate each other of their preferences for play. They create a game with an empty Pringles container that makes them laugh, which in turn makes me smile. The story of, li of their life in that moment is told by me. I encroach on their playtime. I am not so vain to make their moments together my own. To them, they are only two. Me, the odd person out, and it's perfect. I am their invisible friend who they don't know that they have or even need. My eyes find them when I look out of the window. I never see the boys leave. It's a perfect end to our time together. They together and me not wondering where they have gone because their departure is not important, but I look forward to their return. Thank you. Thank you for that. Man, you know, I was gifted the book um, and, um, you know, it was, it, I was, I had a good time when I was reading it because I got this, you know, you had some racy poems in there when I was like, Ooh, this is so good. This is this is, some, this is some adult stuff here, <laughs> and I was I mean you know, it was great, and I mean, you know because we we are human and we want to read, and I was like this is good, and I was like uh, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't no data scientific climate change and poetry. It was, it was <laughs> no, it's, no, definitely not. I just I, I actually write under my full name is Ernestine Louise, um, and I. So, but uh, Tina is my short name, but I write under my given name by my mom and my father because it's a different headspace. 
Mm. It's really like I see when I'm writing as my birth given name, Ernestine Louise, I'm writing from a space that is completely my own. Mm. Um, and as Tina, I work in this other space, which is a different headspace where I'm working and, and doing these other things that are really important for other people. But my writing is really, it's for Ernestine Louise and I'm sharing it with the world. Whereas Tina is, I'm a part of the world in a different way and, and sharing myself in a different way. So, um, so my writing, I actually am very surprised that I don't write about um, climate change uh, at all. It just, um, I don't, it's not in my creative space. It's not the thing I think about. Yeah. But, because I always think about it. Yeah. So folks get Ernestine's book here. Uh, where do they go? Where, where can they go to get the book? Um, you can actually, so for folks who aren't going out, it is on Amazon. It's Influence of Place. Uh, Ernestine Louise is the name. Um, or you can go to my website, uh, ErnestineLouise.com, and you can click on order the book. And or, there's different options for local bookstore vendors or um, through an online platform that just goes to the publisher directly. Um, so, yeah. So. Wow. Fantastic. I encourage all of you. I was gifted one by Tina, so I, and so I was very fortunate. But I can tell you, definitely pick one up and get one. You can hear more of what you just heard um, in that. Tina, let me ask you a question. How has the role of Black women in this movement shaped um, you? But also, right now, um, there seems to be a tremendous amount of powerful systems. I'm just going to run it down. I mean, I have, I've had, and, if, and I try to have as many, I'm, I'm going to keep having them. I try to, if you want to hear more of them, please go to <laughs> the podcast, I'm lining them up here, but there's a whole long list to come because there's so many, but kind of go into that a little bit. Like, what's, what, what is the role? And then also in this space, and this is a predominantly, you know, you know, Birkenstock <laughs> kind of space here that we in. Um, and it seems like now, even with up to um, Vice President Black Harris, you have black women who are going to be leading the charge. Um, is that an important thing? And then for, for young women who are coming into the space, because then also we've had the news recently what we've seen from different organizations, from Audubon, how it, uh, from UCS, how it's still a hostile space. Yeah. So how do you juxtapose all of that? And I guess speaking to particularly black women and women of color in, in the space. Well, I would say that um, black women we've have always led, um, and but we've also been willing to be partners in leadership in ways that I think um, I'll say it. Black men haven't been willing to be necessarily partners in leadership. Um, other women of color have not been willing to be partners in leadership with black women. Um, and white women have not been willing to be partnerships uh, in partnership with black women. And you can see that across the, the board. I mean, even, uh, you know, the feminist movement uh, had, had its very clear issues with race, but um, in particular, it was quite uh, clear after men got the black men got the right to vote <laughs> and they didn't. Um, but I think that the, um, the leadership of black women has always been one of elevation 
mean, we work, and I think this is true of the black community, but we, black women, we work in concert to uplift our race, but we also know that by uplifting our race, that we, we uplift others and that it's not like us over others. I, and I know that for me is person personally, it's like, I believe that when I get in the room, there's, I'm getting in the room because there are other people coming with me. If they're not there now, they're going to be there next. And that that's really key and important uh, to building the world that we believe should exist. It's, you know, I, I think some people I've heard like this slogan, like uh, listen to black women. And it's like, uh, yeah, <laughs> it shouldn't be a slogan, but I find it interesting that it is a slogan because it's almost as if people are like, oh, wait a second, a light has gone on, but they're saying it because actually they're seeing that when black women in leadership actually lead in a more equitable and just way. I'm not saying everyone, but the majority of us do. We believe in fairness. We believe in justice. We believe in that the world should be better for everybody's child, not just our own children, but we're going to fight for the rights of our children to have just as much access, just as much opportunity as everyone else's. And we really believe in creating space um, for everyone because it's not just because we, we know what it's like not to be in the space, but it's because we, I think, believe that Equity and justice is the root of what it means to participate in a fair way within our within humanity, uh, and that it's the humanist in us that really wants to to see the world reflect the things that we teach, we're taught, and we teach our our, our kids. I mean, that's I think that's part of it. I think that um, unfortunately, uh, it isn't always. Uh, white spaces, white-led spaces only that um, make it challenging for black women. Um, just because, you know, the saying, just because you look like us doesn't mean you're for us. It, just because you're a minority doesn't mean that you're going to elevate um, black women in these spaces. Just because your gender is the same doesn't mean that you're going to respect us the same. Um, and that's a, cons- that's a consistent challenge. And what I, I say, I've actually thought about writing a, a book about this, um, how, to, how to survive in white spaces. Hmm. Um, because, but actually it should be how to thrive in white spaces. Hmm. Because I think most of the time we are, we do find ourselves in these spaces struggling. Um, and not because we don't have the ability, but because our ability is consist constantly being undermined or questioned. Uh, and I realized through my journey in these spaces, it's not because, and I've known this always, but it's not because I'm, I shouldn't be there. It's because me being there is threatening. It's the fact that my being there and my ability to be in a leadership role and to, engage and to have the opportunity to build relationships and to be received by other people who maybe folks think wouldn't or shouldn't receive me for whatever their bias is, that that is threatening. Um, And I say that, you know, I always tell women this in particular, when you show up, you show up as yourself. And, you know, that's who you show up as. And you don't change that because someone else is uncomfortable. They will get over it. Or you can find another job. <laughs> Look at me. I'm like, they either get over it or you can find another job. But you don't need to diminish yourself because someone else feels that they, because someone else feels like they can't be seen. 
they have to find a way out for themselves to to be the light they want to be. But I think we bring something that is unique um, in our understanding to spaces. And we also bring an openness to spaces on wanting to really, as I said before, just be fair, have equity, have justice at the root of it. And we can collaborate. We're willing to share, um, but we're also willing to take the lead. And there's that, that, that balance is really important. And we're rooted in what it means to be, to be us. I mean, we have struggled. Um, and that struggle has been uh, on behalf of and with others. And I think right now what you're seeing is black women saying, okay, well, we'll keep moving up and we'll just, and since you're dragging, we'll drag you. So you either got to catch up with us or we're going to drag you with us, but we're no longer going to wait for you to, we're not going to stand still any longer until you get it. We just need to keep moving. And I think that's what's happening. We're just moving forward and, and just saying, we're going to be the leaders that we are. And, you know, consequences be damned. If you don't want to create the space for us, we'll create it ourselves. No, that's right. Man, I know that's right. Um, you know, two more questions here. One is really kind of piggybacking off what you just said. And that's, is there a disconnect between the youth climate movement and the environmental justice movement? Or, and if there isn't a disconnect, or if there is a disconnect, um, is there uh, is there a feeling sometimes where people feel they have to be um, marginalized or be marginalized to make sure their voice is heard? Um, so one is there a disconnect in your eyes, um, and, and two, how basically how can we fix it? You know, it's an interesting question because <laughs> so my experience has been um, from the EJ space that I work in. I work with folks who want, like, they're educators. They love young people. That, you know, Dr. Wright and Dr. Buller, when they started the HBCU conference, um, it's really, it's one, it's my favorite conference. I mean, I've been to conferences all over the world, and this is one, no matter where I am, I will get on the plane, I will take a train, I will drive to go to this conference because they bring together young people from elementary school, high school, college. They work with young people who aren't in college, but their whole focus is you are our future. We want to be a part of your ability to, to, to conquer this world that we live in, to fix the problems that you see, that you live through. Um, but at the same time, they also come from this, from this point of, but you got to pay your dues. They had to pay theirs. There's a con there's a construct there where you do know something and we want to hear it. We know something and you should want to hear it. And so I just think that this thing of, I don't have children. And, um, and so I don't, um, have this, you know, this, this understanding of the parent child conflict, but I was a kid. Um, and my mom said I was a good kid, so I don't think I had this anyway. But but that there is this conflict or this perceived notion of there not being enough space. And I have found that there is enough space. But like everything, we don't get everything we want when we get into a space. We don't. I mean, but leadership and development of leadership is definitely important. I mean, there are folks who have been doing this work since they were in their 30s, 40s, 50s. They're now in their 60s, 70s. They want to retire. 
but they're like, we can't retire because we, there isn't anyone that's stepping in and stepping and stepping up to do this work. So, but we want to pass this mantle. And I also just feel like it's, it is. And the fact that there's this infusion of energy and focus. And I think that what's going on right now with just the protest and the organizing is super inspiring. It's very, um, energizing and it creates a sense of hope that th that we can move things along and that's that's young leadership and so how do how do we begin to really understand that leadership just because it may not be in the organizational framework that you like it doesn't mean that your leadership doesn't have space or place that organizations are organisms they actually evolve the more you're involved it's like our democratic system it only works if we work it. So, you know, if you don't work democracy, democracy will fail you. Mm -hmm. If your organization is set up and you just are like, screw it, I don't want to be a part of it because blah, 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 the old people won't let, then of course it's never going to work because you are, you've decided you don't want to engage. But there's so much space because there's so much work to be done. There's so many opportunities to learn. I have learned. I mean, I've started my own, um, my own organization I didn't know anything. I had this amazing board of, of elders who taught me so much. I don't need to get an MBA. These folks guided me. They respected my leadership. I was way younger than them. But I chose these folks because I knew that I needed folks who actually knew more than I did, had more experience, who would be honest with me, but would also want to guide me. And I think that's part of it. Like, I love the space that I'm in because I'm with people. I'm with people who, one, are just badasses in this movement. Without them, there would be no movement. Who have said that they will share with me this this their experience. They will guide me and direct me. I can call them and ask them questions when I, you know, like I'm not doing this by myself. And that is leadership and to open up that space and be a part of it. None of us can do this alone unless we're on a deserted island and we've been stranded there and we must figure it out by ourselves. But we are not. We are not, on, we are not stranded on an island. We have all of these resources that flow. It's a two-way street. Young people bring in information that older people don't even, didn't know existed. Older people bring in information that young people don't, didn't even know existed. And they might come from different time periods, but they come together to really say, how do we forge a better future together? So, you know what I mean? That, that's what I've experienced. And um, any space I've ever been in where there isn't any room for, for anyone, not just young people, but there's no room for anyone that's not your people, that's not a space I want to be in. Um, so I do think that there, there's space there, and I, and I just really hope that young people realize that, that, that it's space, and the elders want to share, and young people should want to be shared with and to give. So no, I agree. I agree. Well, this is my last question. This is a tough one here, too. This is what I, well, honestly, not tough for you, Tim. You, you know, you've been rocking me. You've been knocking these things out of hand, but... So the last one really goes into EPA at 50. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, EPA returned 50 uh, in December. Um, this year, earlier this year, and we probably missed it because of the COVID crisis, was the Earth Day at 50, the anniversary of Earth Day. And 
many we we have project like a lot of these these anniversaries that we have. But EPA under the past administration really became more so not the environmental protection agency as it did the environmental polluters agency. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Scott Pruitt and Wheeler. And so there's time to obviously there's a lot of work to change that. So what are your thoughts about EPA at 50? And who do you think should lead that organization? Uh, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> that is a political question, and I'm going to be apolitical on that. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you can't. No, you answer how you want to answer it. I think that, you know, that's what people put into the podcast for, to hear, yeah. <laughs> to hear those Responses and uh, but let me say this: There's been a lot of names that have been put out there, from Jake Hensley to Cory Booker to Heather to Tony um, to Mary Nichols. Um, I will tell you. I, I, listen, listen. You know, I'm gonna keep my pocket. I'm gonna tell you what I think. I would love, love to see Jackie Patterson. Uh, without a doubt, I would love to see Jackie go from the NWCP over there to the EPA. That would be phenomenal. I think she'd be phenomenal and take and Dr. Hollis with her. I think that'd be that'd be probably about one, two. They may get one two punch with a lot of folks. But I, I definitely think and um you know I I I I feel that there's folks like um I just want to say give a shout out to from the Doctor McLean's mm-hmm. of the world and Dr. Wright you mentioned before who have just paved an amazing way. Yeah, they have. And honoring that legacy, I think somebody, it should be somebody in that spirit. But EPA at 50, EPA at 50. Uh, so, uh, Ms. Johnson, what are your thoughts on EPA at 50? And I just, I said it, you can say it. I don't know why you can't say it. And who do you think should run the joint? Okay. Well, I one thing, I think that the Environmental Protection Agency, when it's run well, is one of the greatest gifts to the American public um, that are, you know, having regulations on air quality and water quality and just knowing that uh, polluters don't just get a free pass. Um, unfortunately, under this to Trump administration, that has not been the case and we've, and we've suffered for it. Um, that the EPA, and you can also see over time when it's funded well, it can implement really good um, rules when it's supported effectively. Um, it can really help to strengthen the local and state level um, departments of environmental protection in meaningful ways. Um, so I just think that it's the fact that we have it, it's a testament to the fact that we needed it, <laughs> right? <laughs> because things were really bad 50 years ago where, you know, we were looking like uh, some cities in China on really bad days. So I just, I'm glad that it is there. I'm looking forward to it becoming uh, even more effective, um, even not even before before Obama. I mean, it's going to be more effective because it's going to be under the Biden administration, but to be becoming more effective and having stronger regulations on air, clean air and clean water, which they have space to do that. It's on the books. So can we enforce those things? So I'm looking forward to seeing what this new, this 50 year anniversary brings for them to be bold and ambitious. Um, I do 
I would think Jackie Patterson would be amazing as EPA administrator. So I do have no, no arguments there. And I do think there are so many wonderful people who um, could do this job um, well. I would say this. So I, I don't, I don't want to hedge my bets or, or anything. Cause I like many of these people, but I, I just want to say that for me, it, it really needs to be someone who is rooted in seeing the equity and justice as the lens by which they really design and enforce and help to increase the effectiveness of the regulations that are on the books already. Um, and that it's really important that they're willing to be bold um, and to really push this administration to be bold and how they move forward on the new, like if we get an infrastructure um, stimulus uh, and we do start looking at how we want to electrify the grids, if we go to electrification of vehicles, how it works with transportation, what does that mean for our community? That's going to be an environmental protection agency opportunity to figure out what does those regulations look like? How does this really, what are the accumulative impacts on communities? And how do we really want to make sure that we're doing, we're being good stewards of, of the environment in which our communities live in? So I hope that they choose someone that actually has that at the core of of what they're pushing for because environmental justice, I like to say this is not about one community. It's about all of our communities. And if one community has really good air, then the rest of the community will have really good air. So if we all drink good water in one community, guess what? You're going to have good water in your community because these regulations really uphold a standard that we should all want. Um, but I do think that the few people that they've put out or thinking through are really good. But I think that, yeah, there's some room for us to suggest, maybe recommend, <laughs> maybe some folks, and maybe we'll put Jackie on there. I don't think that she'd like be thrilled about it, but I think she'd be amazing if she said yes. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a nonprofit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. Big one, honey. Big one, honey.